in the door trying to get everything all set up kind of sort of situated whatever because we actually have a guest on tonight everybody get ready because we got ray the green dot ray can you hear me sir i most certainly can can you hear me <laughs> loud and clear all right, everybody, thank All you right. for tuning in. This is going to be our favorite little episode here. We call it, actually, we're going to be doing a pick the doc's brain on what should have been a Sunday live show. I may have to start moving these to Monday again. I don't know. That's kind of housekeeping stuff. We'll figure that out. Uh, and uh, so, anyway, I figured since I was doing it Monday, I'd reach out to Doc, see if he could jump on. He said he could. So, wow! I thought that would be a good time. For those of you that are tuning in for the first time, this is uh, Ray, the Green Doc of Hawaii, uh, who has often done uh, the radio show with me. And so I thought it would be a good one to have him in tonight. He said it's in the middle of a downpour down there where he is, but we got him on the telly telly, so he's going to be piped in, coming hot through the microphone some form, way, or fashion. Uh, and also, for those of you tuning in, I'll explain a little bit how this goes. You ask questions. We will provide answers to the best of our ability. Uh, a couple things to take note here. We are human. We are fallible. Well, at least I am. I'm not fully convinced Ray is. Uh, so I, <laughs> no, will, <laughs> I will make mistakes. I'm not sure if he will. And uh, and so we're going we're gonna to work our way through this and see what happens. So if you have a question that you would like answered, feel free to ask it in the chat, and we will get to it. But you have to understand, I will get to it in the order at which I see it and so we start at the top and slowly work our way to the bottom so it may take a minute to get to your question if that is the case please don't be upset with me it's just kind of the nature of it uh there is a time delay on um on the the youtubes here so basically what you're seeing now as of right now from what i can understand uh, from what I can tell, you are approximately about 30 seconds behind of what's actually occurring in real life. And then if you want less of a delay or whatever, you can hop over to twitch.tv slash the grass factor. Um, and I have no idea what happens on Facebook because to be honest, I never, I never look at it anymore. I'm just not that into it. After you get kicked off and banned and all that fun stuff, it just, it loses its appeal. Ray, thank you for being on the show with me tonight. How are you, good sir? 
I'm good. I'm good at the moment. <laughs> is it uh, is it rainy season there, or is it just uh, kind of one of those things where you got you got a you got a big storm coming through? I just got a huge storm coming through that I only knew about uh, a couple of days ago. Just as I was getting uh, through yet another storm, it seems like here in Hawaii we have this condition where one storm starts up, it goes away for a day, and then another one falls right behind it. <laughs> and that's just probably the time of the year. Ah, yeah, that does not sound like uh, too much of a good time, to be honest. There's there's lots of things yep. that, that would make that, mm, could potentially make that fun. Managing turf through the middle of that is not one of them. Nah, but you know, you know, I have my tricks for uh, maintaining my sanity, even though it's uh, sometimes difficult to walk, work on the turf for a week at a time. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, I, I'm sure you can find plenty of things to keep yourself occupied. Oh, absolutely, and uh, this this uh, little storm is the main reason why. When you uh, said, "Hey, let's do a live show," I said. Oh yeah, I'm on. <laughs> <laughs> I'm on. <laughs> yeah, it's hard to hard to be out there doing a whole lot right now. So might as well might as well jump on here and waste some time, right? Oh yeah, oh yeah. I mean, uh, meet up with my people here. <laughs> That's right. Uh, Ray, we will go ahead and get started. I'm going to be uh, kind of sending you stuff on the back end uh, on the cord. Uh, as we progress through the show, but I thought uh, we would go ahead and get started with questions. Again, for those of you that are watching, if you have a question, uh, feel free to throw those in the chat and we will get them as as they occur. I understand we start at the top, work our way to the bottom, so it will be a minute before we get to your question. Uh, question number one, Robbie Nugent says, Hey, Matt, I need some help. I just got a soil test back and my iron is super low even though my pH is 6.5. What should I apply, ironite, or will Carbon X alone be enough? Ray, do you want to handle this one? This seems like something you could handle. Sure, sure. I mean, uh, usually you don't even depend on soil levels for determining your need for iron. And uh, I think in your case, the Carbon X is actually a very good idea because that has iron sulfate in it, and iron sulfate is a very good source of iron, provided your soil is not at or above a pH of 7. It'll work for you. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. I mean, don't feel beholden that you have to go apply Carbon X. Really, there's lots of different sources out there. If you've already got it, it has it in it. So feel free to go ahead and make your application. Don't feel like you need to go buy it specifically to correct your low iron. And again, uh, super low iron is one of those things that is uh, uh, debatable. Um, what exactly qualifies as super low? Just because mm, I, maybe if you're seeing it a, a readout on a soil test, it would actually give you closer to uh, a more accurate interpretation of what is a low um, uh, a, a low iron soil test. I was I started internally in my brain, right? I was going down the wormhole of BCSR, but they're not included in the. Uh, cow mag ratios and all that fun stuff so anyway yeah. no no it's not it's not not at all so 
drop that one. <laughs> yeah, well, let's change the subject there because it could get real testy real fast. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> the next question is, uh, Web Education says, something I noticed was that a lot of products have either seaweed or humic acid in them. If seaweed is known to shrink the stomata of the leaf, then would that hinder how much product gets absorbed? Actually, no, because that shrinkage of the stomata that he's referring to is a physiological effect of the cytokinins in that seaweed or kelp making the stomata a lot more responsive to various environmental conditions because there's actually a lot of times when you want the stomata to be shrunk down a lot and specifically, if you're dealing with a hot and low humidity condition, I want those stomata actually shut down heart to prevent the turf grass from losing excessive water. Yeah, uh, here's the other thing, too, is um, how much uptake actually occurs through the stomata. Not very much. In fact, uh, you know, most of your uptake happens either through diffusion of the, through the leaf tissues or alternately there is soil uptake of that active ingredient. So yes, you don't necessarily depend on the stomata taking up or being the point of absorption for seaweed or for a lot of products yeah and i think i think that's a, a lot of things the method of foliar uptake diffusion is something that uh, i think is is confusing to a lot of people and uh you'll hear uh what's the best way to put this you know the the balancing of salts and when i say salts i'm not talking about sodium i'm i'm talking about actual just the classification of salts uh, the balancing of salts on either side of the membrane uh, is, is, is that diffusion. And that's why it's not common to see something as having 100% foliar efficiency. 100% foliar efficiency when you're dealing with balancing salts is just not a possible thing because it, you are balancing salts, meaning on either side of the membrane, it's going to equalize. That's correct. That's correct. And uh, that, too, is why you need to be very mindful of the actual concentration contained in a solution that you intend to have as a foliar fertilizer. Because another factor to consider, or the, another way to put it, is what is the osmotic potential of your solution? Yes, in different inputs, is you're going to see there are differences among each one of those inputs. That's right. That's right. And then we can start getting into molecular weight and all kinds of other things too that can influence that as well. And that yeah, I, we could probably spend an hour alone on that topic uh, and just gloss the surface. To be honest, just, just yeah, just in uh, just touch the surface because I remember uh, sitting in class and foliar 
fertilization literally took up, uh, oh my goodness, several hours of class time, really. <laughs> uh, Ray, I'm going to fl- kind of change directions here. Uh, oh, yeah. N- Nasty Nate asked a question here. He's a question for the doc. Uh, cool season lawn overtaken with bent and POA and uh, POA annua and Trev. Uh, it was glyphosated four times and slit seeded this fall with tall fescue. What spring pre-emergent do you recommend for the POA seed bank? Tenacity or some other conventional uh, pre-emergent? I would actually start looking at the alternatives to the uh, for that I mean like if you have a poor problem at the I would sec- start looking at yep progress it is progress time because uh, how how aware are you if the resistant pole has made its way up to the cool season region map say, say that again are you aware of the resistant pole that you have down south making its way up to the cool season area? Yeah. Has it been reported in most states up north at this point? I mean, I'm, I'm trying to figure that out because... I'm uh, fairly certain it is, it is across almost every state in the United States. Okay, okay. Because... Uh, I just, uh, well, I'm just trying to think now because I could tell them for diamine, but then what if that pole is non-responsive to diamine? <laughs> yeah, so I am, uh, oh, wait, I did uh, glyphosate-resistant POA, and we are actually in, it has been aden- identified in every state in the United States. So. Oh, my. Yeah. <laughs> That that's not good. Uh, let's see if I can find another map for prodiamine. And yeah, yeah. Uh, so it's not quite as widespread. There are still some places in the uh, in the in the Midwest that has not identified any uh, as just uh, having e- extreme amounts of of uh, prodiamine resistance, but. Pretty much if you are on the East Coast, the Southeast, um, or just the uh, east of the Mississippi, you can pretty much guarantee you have uh, resistant POA, prodiamine-resistant POA. It may not be in your property, but it's been identified in your area. It's been around that I'd imagine that what becomes extremely risky is, and here's what I think about, Matt, where is my weed seed bank coming from? Because, for example, I have a known issue with super goose grass coming in from the golf courses, for example. I got to think about that. Yeah, big time. Yeah. Yeah, I got to think about it. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, yeah, looking here, and it is, uh, all of this is just depressing me and i could and i'll i'll share a link in the chat you can go to resistpoa.org uh and keep up with a lot of the research that's taking place um of course you're going to see information from jim brosnan of course at, at uh university of tennessee but also this is a nice one of those uh, collective 
communal type projects where it's not just the University of Tennessee, but you're seeing uh, other people uh, get involved in this because it is such a tremendous issue. It's unlike this is probably in in turf grass the the foremost resistant issue we've been we've been dealing with over the last I don't know ten years or so. I guess ten years ago I think was the first time I heard about mm, consistent conversation about resistance starting 10 years ago. Yeah, I would say that's about the right timing. And uh, actually for me, uh, even before I heard about COLA, uh, I already heard about, uh, again, goosegrass resisting the formal and accepted treatment. Uh, so Nate, what I would recommend to you is, uh, exactly like you said, consider introducing ethofumisate into your program. Um, because, uh, ethofumisate not only has good pre-control APOA, it also has good post-control APOA. Now with bent grass having been in there, huh, well, yeah, uh, let me ask you this, Ray. You yeah. you fallow the ground with bent grass, right? And then you treat um you treat the next season with tenacity. Is it going to inhibit uh the emergence of any remaining bent grass rhizomes, or is it just going to poke its head up and potentially be bleached when it does surface? Most likely, it's going to come up and be all whited out. However, if you do have a bent grass issue, I also suggest that people get into a godly weed control program that's very heavy on 2,4-D and triclosphere. Do you know why, Matt? Uh, because of the sensitivity of that turf grass specifically to those two herbicides. That's right. That's right. And, uh, I can't help but notice that bent grass has become, I think, more of a topic ever since everybody dealing with turf grass has been steered away from making routine broadcast applications of a 2,4-D or triclosphere. The talk now is spot spray. But I think in the past when it was routine for a lawn to get a spring and or a fall application of a 2,4-D and triclosphere that probably treatment, in fact, wasn't as much of an issue. There you go. Uh, Nate said SurePower would be a good choice with the flumioxazin in it. But again, SurePower, you can't apply until it's pretty smoking hot outside. Uh, so if we're going at it from the standpoint of uh, leading up to that, you know, because it's probably going to show its head pretty early in the season, being a cool season grass, right? So, yeah, as you get to the point that SurePower is there. Yeah, and... Uh... 
when you're trying to deal with bent grass, what I would probably do to it is I would work on keeping it bleached out during the spring. And keeping it bleached out during the spring would mean repeated low-rate applications of something like tenacity. Just keep it white. Keep it white, uh, just like when you're going after Bermuda grass. But, you know, again, a little bit different in season there, right? So you kind of have to shift your application schedule. Uh, mm-hmm. Next question here, Mr. Gray said, uh, when I spray prodiamine on my tall fescue Kentucky bluegrass right now, how long do I wait to spray the prefix? You can actually mix and spray both of those together or separately, whatever. You can pick your poison on that one. Uh, does glyphosate kill the poa annua seeds with the plant? Or is it better to pull small infestation along the street edge in Northern California? Oh, no. <laughs> you know what I'm going to tell Joe? <laughs> Kill that with fire. <laughs> <laughs> because, no, no, really, anytime I see weeds that are so advanced that I actually see seeds on them, that's been thinking already. Yeah, and I would agree to that 110% uh, because glyphosate will have no effect on seedlings. Um, it, yeah, it's it, when it, it basically in contact with seedlings for the most part, it's going to act as a, an, an inert material. Uh, and if you don't believe or trust me in that, uh, go get some grass seed. Uh, 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 get, get take you a, a paper towel soaked in glyphosate, rub it on your seeds, then go plant it, and uh, you'll be stunned that it turns and grows and turns green and looks like every other piece of fescue you have in your lawn. Uh, it will not affect the seed. It has to be uh, absorbed into the plant. And if at the time of application you're dealing with the seed, it cannot be. Uh, uh, absorbed into the plant, therefore it cannot control the seed, if that makes sense. Yep. Yep. <laughs> uh, kind of the next question. Oh, wait, wait. We'll, we'll get to that one here. Uh, preem timing coming up with prodiamine. This is Mr. RVL Jackson. But keep having broadleaf issues in the spring. Watch whiteboard video again for refreshers. Should I add isoxabin or sulfentrazone? for added broadleaf weed control? Okay. I would probably prefer the uh, isoxidin because uh, their sulfentrazone is a better pre for sedges. It is not as much of a pre for broadleaves, although it can be used for certain broadleaves. I'd rather use the uh, isoxidin, you know, right tool for the job. Yeah, uh, so, and I I would say that if you're trying to kill them post-emergently, adding sulfentrazone to the tank there may may behoove you, but in terms of pre-emergently controlling them, uh, yeah, yeah, Soxman is just going to be a better bet, uh, money money better spent in that regard. Totally, and uh, although it does come to a case of you have to really analyze your lawn and areas and think about what is present in those lawns because if I were dealing with uh, a lot of say nutsedge and kailinga 
I go the other way and utilize the self-interest zone because that has become my worst lead over and above the broad lead. It's actually the stages. It can be a real chore. So it depends. Yeah, yeah. It depends on what you're actually dealing with. And you kind of got to look and weigh things out. Although, uh, cover your ears if you're on a low budget because I've been known to apply both uh, zone and isoprazone in the same tank. <laughs> it's not cheap, but it's effective. Not everything in this right. world that's effective is cheap. Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, that's just my main point. Although, for in the case of Mr. Jackson there, most expensive thing is a callback or an unhappy customer. There is no doubt about that. Uh, for anybody that's done this professionally, uh, you understand exactly 110% what it means to have a callback. That is the seedling of doubt in your customer's mind that you now have to work to overcome. And chances are, over a period of a year or two years, they're going to remember that. And it's going to cast doubt in their brain. So that way, say, again, you make a second mistake. Now you're lining up for your three mistakes and you're out, right? No matter how good you may be doing, it's simple things like that that people just remember and get quirky about. I've watched it happen. It's happened to me. It's happened to lots of people I know. So again, whatever we can do to minimize callbacks in this instance, if, with you having such broadleaf weed issues and say you've, you've put down an application to 2,4-D and whatever else, and, uh, and it, it, you know, it seems to be resurging pretty, pretty well, go ahead, ex exchange that for some isoxabin or add isoxabin to the tank and just be done with it. Yeah, just, just get it done because for me, the, the actual chemical cost per thousand square foot is a lot less expensive than number one, being called back to apply again, or number two, having somebody say, ah, you know, you, you can't even, you know, control the weeds. I might as well tell for a cheaper guy and not even not even worry about the weeds anymore. Forget it. <laughs> uh, next question here is, uh, uh, is there anything to selectively wipe out bent grass and cool season turf? Uh, we kind of went through that where we were talking about uh, all those other things. Um, you know, tenacity is, is going to do okay. Again, triclopyr, 2,4-D, all of those are going to increase the amount of action across multiple sites. Uh, to lead towards the demise of bent grass, uh, Nasty Nate says Sure Power would be a good choice too. Uh, I have no no experience spraying Sure Power on um, on bent grass. Maybe the little bit of uh, triclopyr, fluoroxapyr, and flumioxazin combination there may have some effect. It may have two four D in it too. So um, it it may. I think it does. I think I think it does. And from from what I can tell. Fluoroxapyr is extremely harsh on soliniferous grasses. Bermuda Period. certainly does not appreciate applications of fluoroxapyr. Yeah, and in, in many respects, I actually consider like Bermuda, Ishapestalum, and bent grass as 
you know, bent grass is just the cool season cousin of those first two grasses, if that makes sense. Um. All right, we'll move on to the next question here. My question is, is can you explain phosphites and how they act as a fungicide? Are phosphites considered a fertilizer or a fungicide? And Ray, I'll let you answer that, but real quick, Nick, I'll tell you this. Uh, it all comes down to the labeling uh, because if you label it as a fungicide, you have to uh, basically, you've got to line up for the EPA to give you your, your spanking uh, in terms of cost and research <laughs> that you put into it. And, you know, in some instances, I get why you have to go through that, right? You've got to prove the the safety and efficacy of the product before you put it on the market. I totally get that. But uh, if you're going to label something a fungicide, you have to have all that data in line. If you don't, then, boy, they do not like that, and they do not want you to call it a fungicide because a fungicide is a pesticide. And the EPA is the federal pesticide police. They are the top dogs. They are the CIA of pesticides. So um, that's why you will see phosphites rarely labeled as a fungicide, rather labeled as a fertilizer, even though they do act in both ways. Ray, can you explain how phosphites uh, function as a fungicide of sorts? At the right concentrations, the uh, phosphates have a growth inhibition effect on specifically Phytophthora and Pythium. And I need to repeat that Phytophthora and Pythium because I have seen people utilize phosphate for fungus diseases that it has absolutely no effect on. And, of course, they're in for a very rude surprise. Phosphites are one of those that you can get out there and spray all day long for dollar spot, and it's not really going to do anything for you. Now, uh, phosphites, debatable, biostimulant, SAR elicitor, uh, and and you can get some uh, 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 power through some abiotic stressors in, in that regard with it, but... Uh, simply putting, is it a broad-spectrum fungicide? Hell no. No, 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 no. Because uh, for me, I'm most familiar with, uh, you know, Fosseto Al, right? Good old Elliot or Signature. And that is not a general fungicide, but I use it because that product has efficacy again the very disease that the other fungicides do not have efficacy for, which would be the, the Phytophthora and Pythium. That's right. That's right. Um, yes, and, uh, <laughs> go ahead. Go ahead. And that's why I know several people uh, on the cord and even like the names that I see uh, here now, they're familiar with a three fungicide combination, including Fossetal L. <laughs> um, yeah, and that's another one. We have done this before, but we could easily go down a tremendous wormhole of phosphites and phosphonates and phosphatal aluminum and all other types. <laughs> types of things but uh anyway nicholas I, I hope that helps um john cruz 
says, is it beneficial to apply a wetting agent a few days or a day before applying prodiamine? You know, I think theoretically that should enhance, you know, spread and soil penetration of that prodiamine. You know, this is this is one of those things I've never seen uh, any research to point to that being a having a greater efficacy than just a regular prodiamine application. Uh, so it, it it might theoretically, yeah, it makes sense. I know uh, Helena Chemical has some some different things out there. There was one of them they were trying to sell me real hard on one year uh, that was, um, oh, what is it? What is it? Uh, it, it was, I have it was, no off that back and look at increased efficacy is if you know you're dealing with what I call hydrophobic soil. At that point, it would be advisable to actually deal with that hydrophobic soil before you actually apply another product that needs to go down into the soil. And that's a logically yes, and that's a great point. And let me clarify there that where everywhere I have lived, uh, when I'm making pre-emergent applications, is in the middle of my rainy season. So uh, I'm not. I'm typically done dealing with hydrophobicity by the time I'm applying a pre-emergent. Now, debatably, when making fall applications or late summer applications of pre-emergents for POA control, that may have affected some of the efficacy of fall pre-emergents because I'm coming out of the brutal summer. And a lot of times, the, my driest months where I have lived have been September and October. So if you're making your applications the 1st of September or end of August or mid-September, well, that's in the middle of my dry period. So I could be dealing with higher instances of hydrophobicity there, and it could be difficult to move that pre-emergent to where it needs to be. So that's a great point, Ray. Yeah, I and mean, I'm just kind of thinking about instances where I need to deal with previously dried out and neglected areas that Oh my goodness, why haven't the, the sprinklers been running here and now everything's dried up and repelling water? First step to do is break out that uh, pellet holder gun and get that place to absorb water first. <laughs> the, old, the old pellet pro. Right, uh, right. All right, Ray, we'll move on to uh, searching high and low for the best way to kill old St. Augustine from creeping its way back into my seven-year-old Emerald Georgia lawn in Dallas, Texas. Have any good ideas? Well, he's got several ways to do it. Uh, My favorite way to do it, because he's in Texas, would actually be with Quinclorac. St. Augustine hates Quinclorac. You can't use it on St. Augustine for crabgrass control, for example. But you can use quinclorac on Emerald Zoysia all day long and not hurt it. Yeah, so uh, uh, quinclorac is, is one of them. But, and I, I want to make this clear, uh, Rocky, that um, you will not 
prevent it from creeping its way back into your emerald zoysia. It will be a perpetual, never-ending, lifelong battle because that's what St. Augustine does. It creeps. And you cannot inhibit the creeping activity of that unless you put up a large enough physical barrier to keep it from being able to spread into your property. I don't even know if, would copper work? I know a lot of times for trees, we've used copper before in the past, even for like uh, bamboo, uh, using large copper sheets embedded in the ground to keep uh, uh, the roots from sending up shoots outside of, of its container. I don't even know if St. Augustine would be held back by copper subsurface. Actually, Matt, St. Augustine and Centipede are the easiest grasses to exclude or barricade out of an area. All it would take would be a six-inch barrier, and I'm talking about six inches below the soil surface. Uh, if you told me I had to stop Zoysia or Bermuda, uh, then I'd be looking at a 12-inch barrier. But St. Augustine is easily stopped by any kind of a solid, seamless barrier. Well, there we go. Little, <laughs> little, little burial project for you, and, uh, and you should be able to keep it at bay. Uh, Get Brady, a crunching machine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you and Mr. Ben, ben Worthman. Uh, where should pH be in an herbicide mix to get the best result? Okay, I'd be looking at a pH between 5.5 and 7. That's for most herbicides. However, uh, exception to that would be if you're spraying one of the nutsage-specific sulfonylurea herbicides such as halosulfuron or inazosulfuron, like celero, then you do not want your water pH to be below 7. But if you're talking about three-way quinclorac, uh, prodiamine, tenacity, something like that, then I'd recommend the water pH between 5.5 and 7. Yeah, that is the, uh, as kind of a safe bet, it would be between the 5.5 and 7. And again, as you get into specialty chemistries, uh, you know, specifically the sulfonylureas, you know, you're going to have uh, uh, higher solubility in, uh, in higher pHs. So it, it, can get, it can get a little bit squirrely there. Uh, wait. Squirrel down. Uh, but as a general rule of thumb, uh, five and a half to seven. Uh, real quick, I actually missed this, and I wanted to go back and answer this. Uh, Johnny Fescue said, can I substitute a half pound of muriate of potash in April on fescue to save money over potassium sulfate? We'll be mixing with prodiamine three-way triclopyr. Any burn issue? Wow. That is going to be kind of a hot mix. Uh... It all depends, I guess, on how well watered your turf is, uh, what's your spray volume, because uh, to be honest with you, I have never liked myriad of potash in water volumes 
lower than five gallons per thousand square foot. I can say I have sprayed as low as two gallons per thousand square feet uh, with a half pound of MOP in April. Uh, and I will say this, the later you get in April, the riskier it becomes. Uh, I have, I've gotten a little toasty with things late in April, especially with, uh, a full rate of three-way and a triclopyr kicker in there. I mean, Ray's not kidding. That starts to get pretty toasty. So Johnny Fescue, you can just be careful. Make sure you have adequate water volume to get that down. If you don't have adequate water volume to get it down, be sure to raise, uh, 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 immediately water it in after application, um, which you may not want to do with your three-way and triclopyr in there. So, just that's right, understand. and that's kind of why I just don't like, you know, fertilizers with post-emergent herbicides in general. I generally don't like it. <laughs> now I'm a little riskier than that, and I don't mind it. So. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, burn baby burn yeah that's right that's right uh t dot said i went to order more speeds on this season but it's now banned in california four speed nxt was banned last year in california but now it's available this year what's up with that matt so my initial thought and I, i i don't know why specifically this is purely just conjecture here but my guess is is they reformulated 4-Speed XT with a California label that excluded 2,4-D. And I don't know. That's just my guess. What are your thoughts, Ray? Well, it's very simple. <laughs> California restricts all 2,4-D, NCPP, Dicamba, and Cricopier products across the board it's restricted i mean uh only exception to that restriction is if the product is a consumer product sold in i believe quantities less than 32 ounces and you know he's mentioning what i consider pro products and I know for a fact that California is just like Hawaii concerning professional products. There you go. Simple enough. Um, and that would make sense why we saw it gone and then back. And, uh, and especially if you're getting it in smaller quantities than you were previously, that may be what's up with the availability there. Um, I can say even from a fertilizer perspective, California is just difficult to deal with. Um, and, you know, sometimes, sometimes it feels like they are trying harder to keep you from uh, providing material in their area than they are uh, encouraging the business in that area. So uh, it can, it just, I don't know, it's, it's, it's an interesting place to do business. Uh, all right, moving on here. Uh, let's see. It seemed like there was one more up here that I wanted to ask, but I don't see it. Maybe that was it. 
Um, okay, so Timmy Bluegrass said, hey, Matt and Ray, can you speak to the permanency of root pruning as a result of the pre-emergent applications? Obviously, roots grow in cycles. Can pruned roots ever regrow to their full potential? Potential either by skipping pre-emergent applications or using a biocenate like prefix. Should special caution be exercised with newly seeded turf grass? I'll kind of give my approach to this, and then, and then Ray, you can chime in with yours. Um, is as long as you have an active vapor barrier from a pre-emergent in your soil, uh, you are basically inducing a root pruning effect on your turf grass. Now, kind of moving on to the second piece of that is, uh, can prune roots ever regrow? Yes, they can. Uh, is skipping a pre-emergent application part of that? Yes, it can. If you seed in the fall, should you worry so much about it in the spring? Yes and no. Uh, at this point, we have all done things pretty much the same way where you're just accustomed to dealing with it. It's a necessary evil because a lot of times it's way more expensive, way more complicated, way more risky, especially from a professional perspective, to structure and execute post-emergent only programs. That is a quick way to get yourself in trouble. Uh, you misapply, you can burn a ton of cash and only have half the result. You miss your timing, you can burn a ton of cash and have no result. So it has become a necessary evil, if you will, a necessary thing that just happens and, and we get accustomed with it. How much does it set us back in the spring as we start moving into the stressful period of summer? Probably more than we realize. I've always told the, the anecdotal story of um, an, an old boss I had that would never let anybody put pre-emergent on his fescue uh, in the spring. Just absolutely refused to allow it to happen uh, because the performance he got out of his yard through the duration of the summer was so much greater than it was when it was treated with a pre-emergent. So, that was kind of the thinking that went in when I was trying to put that product together. Um, but Ray, what is your take on it? And, uh, and, and yeah, yeah, yeah. Go ahead and share your opinion. Well, I think that uh, there is some root pruning and yes, the turf can recover from that root pruning. But then the most important thing that I think about regarding root pruning is when in the year is that root pruning happening? Is it happening when the uh, grass is developing its carbohydrate stores? Is it happening when your turf grass is uh, basically, you know, vigorously growing, already healthy? Uh, there's a lot to think about, but the biggest thing that I think about regarding root pruning is I try to balance amount of root pruning I create with efficacy of weed control. So for example, my weed control tends to go a lot towards moderate rates of cardiamine plus that isoxabin. And the reason why I go towards isoxabin or add it to the program is because with isoxabin, I can keep my rate of prodiamine moderate and get improved control of broadleaf weeds, which are actually what I worry more about, if that makes sense. Yep. 
Makes perfect sense uh, because if you are cl- when carbohydrate storage is is taking place, obviously this you're getting a lot of root development taking place there. You're looking for roots to store things in, and if you are uh, restricting the development of that root system in that time frame, you're restricting the amount of carbohydrate storage that could take place, and uh, and ultimately could be potentially setting yourself up for a difficult transition out of dormancy or what, you know, whatever it is you go through. Uh, so again, I, I just, I feel like it's one of those things we've just become so accustomed to it's, it's out of sight, out of mind, maybe is, is, uh, is kind of the way I've always approached it. Um, because if I'm seeding something in the fall, am I going to skip a pre-emerge in the spring? Hell no, hell no. (laughs) <laughs> no, you better not. No, you better not. And uh, the, the other thing that I kind of like to think about is, is it worth it to skip pre-emergent or even post-emergent if that means that the turf area is going to get taken over by weeds? Because I know the subject that I'm most interested in is the weed control program during and after seed or sprig establishment, for example, because what is the convention on those uh, during those times? No herbicides, right? Yeah, that's right. That's right. But you know, I uh, I think I've seen too many of my share of little dumpster fires caused by people sticking to that policy of seeing. Well, no weed control until the turf is totally established. But in my case, and with some of the grasses that I deal with, turf being completely established means that you have to ride that out for maybe three or four months. And I just can't imagine it. <laughs> um. Yeah, I mean, because it's a it's a quick way to get in big trouble, and it, it, this kind of parlays into things you like to do here, Ray. Uh, I like to burn buildings. You prefer to per, uh, burn weeds. And uh, Web Education here says, actually, speaking of fire, what does fire do to the root structure of a plant? Uh, University of Florida says they found that burning torpedo, then waiting for it to grow back, then spraying it with quinclorac is more effective. Ah. Uh- U.S. is uh, true. Uh, I have a friend at the University of Hawaii that found that in order to get torpedo, the best thing to do to it is to defoliate it one time with a combination of sulfentrazone and carfentrazone and then start hitting it with things like Monument, uh, Celsius, and that new product called Manuscripts. But when you burn up or damage the torpedo grass foliage, you're forcing that torpedo grass to use up some of the carbohydrate reserves. And so when you injure it and then you wait for it to grow back and as soon as it grows back, you start hammering it, that makes a lot of sense versus trying to get it when it's live. I know personally, Something I do to a lot of weeds is I first scalp and then wait for it to grow back during the growing. 
Yeah, so it, it, exactly that. Think about it this way. Whenever you burn off the foliage of something that is going to turn green again, that's going to grow back, in order for it to grow back, it has to come from somewhere, and it's using stored carbohydrates. And where do those carbohydrates come from? It's going to be through photosynthesis, right? So if you burn off all the leaves, photosynthesis cannot occur. Therefore, no carbohydrate storage can occur. So if it's going to turn green again, it has to tap into what it already has. So if, in effect, you are slightly uh, 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 de depleting the root system, if you will, uh, leaving it a bit more susceptible to the influence of an herbicide when you come back after the fact and hit it with something like quinclorax. So, um, yeah, 100% with what you just said. Uh, let me see. <laughs> F went, I saw that. That's, uh, that's funny. That's old school. Uh, Soxman fits best based on your answers. Thanks. If it keeps broadleaves to a minimum, then it minimizes the callbacks, which was the intent of my question. Perfect. Thanks. Uh, said RBL Jackson. James Murphy says, does soil CEC affect the longevity of pre-emergence? Okay. How high or low of a CEC are we talking about? Because as long as your soil has any percentage of clay or organic matter in it, that is enough absorptive sites for a pre-emergent to work. On the other hand, if you are growing your turf on 100% sand, be careful. Be very careful because if you're growing on 100% sand, that means that your pre-emergent can literally reach down and move a lot farther towards the root system than the manufacturer intended. Yep. The depth of that herbicide, it can move uh, with much less restriction. So, uh, and, and so James, when we say this, that if you're growing in a native soil, uh, chances are the, the CEC, if you're, if you've got somewhere between, Oh, I don't know, a six all the way up to a, a 25, somewhere in that range, you're probably not going to see a whole lot of difference in efficacy or longevity out of that. Uh, I think more exposure, photo degradation, uh, uh, heat degradation, light degradation is going to be a bigger impact than your CECs will at that point. Remember uh, that when you're applying a pre-emergent, you're not applying a series of cations to the soil. Um, I, correct me if I'm wrong, Ray, but I don't, I don't believe a pre-emergent is going to, uh, uh, degrade into individual cations. It's all, it's all synthetic. No, no, so, so, no not at all. Yeah. Just making sure there's no, there's no cations being released somewhere out of there. That's just completely unbeknownst to me. Uh, but, uh, so, so a CEC more so would have to do in that regard and how it affects pre-emergence as related to the actual physical structure of your soil, the structure mm -hmm. of your soil, not necessarily the CEC rating of your soil. Because here, here's yeah, another, yeah. another thing you could do, and I'll, I'll kind of give you a converse to uh, this particular thing right here as well. Imagine you have soil, uh, you have sand, straight sand that has been uh, uh, amended with, say, 50% carbon, straight carbon, whether it's from biochar, activated carbon, whatever the case may be, it's been amended where 50% of your soil structure is straight carbon. You have a CEC off the chart. What's going to happen yep. when you apply a pre-emergent to that? 
we're probably going to have no efficacy of that pre-emergent because that pre-emergent is going to be bound preferentially to that carbon to such an extreme level that your pre-emergent will literally not work. And the reason why I bring that up is because that high amount of carbon binding can also happen when you put too much biochar or you put too much, say, humic acid in an area. And therefore, there is so much carbon-based material in that soil that whatever herbicides, fungicides, insecticides, whatever, just get immediately bound up to that carbon. Because by the way, the antidote for a herbicide misapplication is, you guessed it, carbon. Yep. Uh, again, with all things like water and everything else, moderation is key. Uh, so, uh, but James, I hope we answered your question. I think we kind of went above and beyond down some different wormholes there. So um, I will continue on here. Uh, can you, oh, wait, what is this? Mm. Uh, cost aside, is Spectacle Flow the most effective pre-emergent for the weeds it covers? That's uh, debatable. I think, I think it, yes, I, maybe. I, there's a lot of variables there to unpack in order to make that a definitive statement. Well, you know, again, it depends on what you are using the spectacle for. Again, because I've been known to apply, say, a combination of Spectacle and isotoxin for my fall and winter pre-emergent because again, isotoxin tends to pick up the broadleaf weed that spectacle is not as good on. And in fact, uh, I was literally told by the bear people not to depend on spectacle for broadleaf weed control. Uh, yeah. The other thing I would say too, is like, you know, you may, you may feel real good about spectacle. I'm telling you, uh, the first case resistance was identified with spectacle. It's all downhill from here. Uh, and like, I know for instance, spectacle is supposed to be, you know, provide good, fair to good control of also dove weed. Uh, I know lots of people that apply it are still dealing with tremendous amounts of dove weed. So, I, you know, dollar for dollar, is it the most effective for the weeds it covers? Um, I, I don't know. It's, yeah. <laughs> but I will answer it this way, card player. If I was in a warm season market, wouldn't, yeah, well, and I'll say, you know, Bermuda, Zoysia. I'm not even going to talk about Centipede because it doesn't deserve to be mentioned. So Bermuda or Zoysia, I would be applying Spectacle Flow. I mean, there's no doubt about that. Uh, can you use glyphosate in winter Pacific Northwest while weedy grasses are growing in areas? Daytime temps in the mid forties. I I wouldn't because, uh, one one season grass is what I know as being tolerant of glyphosate above and beyond what cool season grass can tolerate because if you were to apply glyphosate to a cool season grass and not kill it, 
amount of glyphosate that you apply would be equivalent to no more than two to four ounces per acre of a 41% glyphosate concentrate. Anything above that and your one-season grass is smoked. Yeah, I, I, you know, daytime temps, mid-40s. If you got to get out there with some glyphosate, I'll tell you right now, uh, you're probably going to need to spike it with something. So, so going after weedy grasses, that's – in those instances, say I'm spraying like beds to prepare for uh, uh, mulching and stuff like that. You know, right now is where I would normally add a little bit of uh, f- uh, flazifop to my tank. Uh, and if I'm real feeling real froggy, a lot of times I'm also putting down sulfentrazone too at the same time, you know, pre, pre mulch sprays. Yeah. And that, that was how I got my bang for my buck out of it. Or, uh, I, even a, another instance, if you're going after bed controls like that, another good one would be flumioxys and sure power. Right. But if you're, if you're just trying to take care of weedy grasses growing in the lawn, um, and I'd probably just wait to myself. Yeah. Wait. And in fact, if anything, fall and winter time is actually when you're supposed to be using your ethylene or your weedy grasses, like poa. Yep, that's a good point. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, please don't try to substitute glyphosate for ethylene even though I know it's expensive because. I can tell you right now, looking at the product labeling for the glyphosate, they're talking about utilizing no more than two to four ounces per acre as an industrial growth control on cool season turf. And do you know what an industrial growth control is? Uh, No. Okay, you know what that means? That it's going to fly the turf but it's not going to totally kill it. Oh, the old, the old it's burn not going to look good. <laughs> yep. Yep. It's going to burn in return. There you go. <laughs> um, Ray, is it possible to overdo SAR elicitors? Say for instance, spraying salicylic acid and then followed by kelp and then followed by a phosphite week after week after week. I think you can. And, uh, at some point in time, all of that stuff is going to work backwards on you. It's going to work backwards on you and literally become toxic within the plant. Yeah. So again, moderation. It's it's all about moderation. Um, you know, I would feel, especially week after week after week, you you, you got to get some space between those applications. Um, yeah, you just, you got to, if you're doing that on a, on a weekly interval. Now there's some research on bi-weekly intervals, uh, and this is going to be on super high end turf. So I'm saying like golf greens and stuff like that, um, where I've seen some pretty significant rates go down on, on bi-weekly intervals that have not had anything just out of control, uh, happen on it, but I think the tightest you would want to make those applications would be on two-week intervals at the absolute tightest. Give them the opportunity to grow out of the plant before reapplying. Absolutely. And uh, even with something like kelp with that, you know, cytokinin and, you know, auction-like activity, Matt, 
What is an example of an auction? <laughs> 24D. Print physiology quiz. 24D, yep. So that makes my point that it's possible to, I guess, have too much of a good thing and then have it do things that you don't intend for it to do. Yeah, I'll I'll give you an example with kelp. I've I've overapplied before, and you will tip burn the the fire out of the grass. Uh, in the same instance, you you overapply peptide materials, you'll growth regulate the plant, and then it'll die. Uh, so, um, yeah, it definitely can be overdone. Moderation is key. Timing is key. Uh, again, leading up into periods of stress, and then through a period of stress, and then give it a chance to recover and grow out of the plant. The good thing is, is that a lot of those things mentioned, like kelp, like salicylic acid, like a phosphite, is going to grow out relatively quickly. So it's not like it's just going to be lingering within that plant for a year after you make an application. That's why it's only effective for a period of time after application. Yeah, um, I mean, that's the, that's the good part. <laughs> So Gardner Urquhart says uh, spectacle on Bermuda and Zoysia dropping MSM on warm season. That's the goods or not? I'm confused. I don't know what you're saying. Are you saying combining Uh, spectacle and metsulfuron methyl, or are you saying you're going to apply spectacle and get rid of metsulfuron methyl? I don't know what he's asking. I think he's going to try to get rid of the MSM, and you know what? That, to me, is the worst possible idea. I wouldn't do it. And the reason why I wouldn't do it is because, number one, MSM offers a different mode of action for your cool season grasses. And number two, ethical is not my first choice for dealing with broadleaf wheat. So I would try to incorporate as many different modes of action into a weed control program as I could. I, I wouldn't uh, drop one in favor of the other uh, without having a very good reason to do it. And sorry, that reason is not uh, political, for example. <laughs> That's not a good reason to do it. Yep. Uh, I, yeah, I, I agree 100%. Uh, Chris Gibson uh, Gibby, said, say I wanted to extract a compound from a plant. What is the easiest method versus the cheapest method? <laughs> that's, that's a loaded question because uh, it depends on what compound you're trying to extract. So Yeah, what you're, yeah, what you're trying to extract and uh, because I know the easiest method is to use something called a soxalate extractor. But a soxalate extractor is an apparatus that will probably cost about $500 to $1,000. Yeah. Basically, you know what a soxalate extractor is, Matt? Yes, I watch Nile Red. Okay. Yeah, so you see all that... uh, that glassware and it's that condenser, glassware, and, yeah, yeah, all of that. Because basically, what you're doing is you're dropping a heated solvent on top of your plant material, and that then drops down back into your flask, and then more solvent distills up, drops on your material, and that process just 
repeats indefinitely in a loop until you've achieved total extraction. But again, I price out the glassware and the associated apparatus, and I get a price tag of about five hundred to a thousand dollars just yeah, for that. <laughs> it, it can get real expensive, and it, you know the thing is too is you got to pick your solvent, right? Are you going after oils? You know, maybe you want to use alcohol, but which alcohol do you want to use? Uh, you know, if it's going to be for like human consumption, maybe you want to stay away from methanol and you want to stick with, uh, with ethanol. So it's, it can get real complicated, real fast to figure out how to extract it. Another way, probably not cheap, uh, is literally pressing it, uh, and collecting the extract. So there's lots of different ways to go out there you would have to tell me what exact compound you're going after and then maybe we could put together a plan for how to do that or at least be able to point you to one on the old youtube to find one out uh ray here's a comment here from garner earth guy said root pruning mixed with light uh pgr grows smaller plants and more crowns per square foot thicker turf uh, yes and no, and I'm also going to tell you, be extremely careful about root pruning on anything that you intend to growth regulate. Don't ask me how I know. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, yeah, that's, that's kind of a yes and no. It's a little bit misleading. It makes it sound like it's a good thing. That's not exactly the case. Uh, so yeah, 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 uh, yeah. Just be careful that it's not always a, a good thing. Ryan Smith says DSMA hasn't killed the paspalum at my place after multiple apps at the low rate. High rate smoked the test patch of Bermuda. Can I mix the DSMA at a low rate with uh, men or halosulfuron in Australia? I don't know what, what men is. M-E-N. Well, no, I think he means MSM because they can get misulfuron in Australia. Mm. Here's what I'm, here's what I'm going to tell you. Uh, when you're trying to do Dallas grass with arsenic, you first need to find the rate that actually affects your Dallas grass. Number two, it's, you have to hit it every 7 to 14 days. And number three, you have to do it when the weather is warm. It does you very little to no good if it's cool weather. Yep, that's the big thing. And so, you know, typically the way I would time it is try not to put it on just a set day interval. Um, after I made my first application, at the instant where I felt like I was seeing a little bit of recovery, I was scheduling my next application. And at the instance I felt like I was seeing a little bit of recovery, I made my third application if I needed it. I will say this I don't know if you can get uh, Celsius in Australia. If you can, uh, combining that uh, with your DSMA would be probably your most effective uh, for a two-shot kill, assuming you have temperatures and assuming you time it right between your first and second application. I always had the most success with that. Um, so I would say you would probably have pretty good success with it where you are as well. Actually, in Australia, believe it or not, these guys can get revolver. Monument and the active ingredient in Celsius. They can get it. Perfect. Perfect. 
Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you know, beer and Syngenta does business in Australia too, Matt. So <laughs> you know, he's got he's got avenues because personally, I've always liked, for example, combining Revolver and Celsius when I need to go after Dallas Grass. That's my favorite. <laughs> My wife is in the chat. Hey, Asami. Thank you for stopping by and saying hey to everybody. Oh, Asami. <laughs> uh, Lambert said, what is the benefit of using a standard three-way versus straight 2,4-D? Uh, 2,4-D is not the strongest herbicide on a lot of Broadleaf leaves. You, you kind of need the dicamba. You need the MCPP in most cases, although for me personally, like I'll, when making large area applications, I have gotten a lot done with a combination of 2,4-D and dicamba, for example, but I've never had good luck applying 2,4-D by itself. Yes, uh, it's all about spectrum of control, right? Uh, so that, that's really what it comes down to. Uh, and you know, so so, yes, there's a reason why you see them as three ways and four ways. That is the, uh, most effective way to broaden your spectrum of control. All right. We have come up on 1017 Ray. I want to thank you for tuning in tonight. I sure do appreciate you, sir. Uh, always, always, uh, welcome here whenever you would, uh, whenever you will, please. If everyone would go check out the fan factor, my wife just threw a, uh, a link into the chat. I'm going to throw that in there as well. And, uh, and go check out it's a little bit. If you're interested in what I do in my personal life, uh, you can, you can check out a little bit of, of what we do there. What, what life is like at the Martin's house. I gotta say it's, uh, somewhat entertaining, but you know, you know, it's a, it's a good time. Uh, <laughs> you're getting, uh, compliments here. Uh, uh, somebody <laughs> said you're the Mr. Miyagi of, of grass. And that that's well, I, I thought thank that was you, a, man. Uh, thank you. That is nice. <laughs> that is nice. <laughs> All right, everybody. Well, thank you so much, Ray. Thank you, sir. We'll be talking soon and we will catch y'all on the flip side. Thank you.